1: I'm Rob Wolf, and this is New Books in Science Fiction, a podcast where authors of science, speculative, and fantasy fiction talk about their new books. This is the Fall Like a Thunderbolt edition. Today we're talking about war, the next world war to be exact, and in case you're wondering when it's going to happen, 13 years. That's the answer. In 13 years, the U.S. and China will go at it, at least according to the book, titled 2034, and to underscore the point, the novel is subtitled A Novel of the Next World War. My guest today is a co-author of 2034, Elliot Ackerman. He is a former Marine who served in Iraq and Afghanistan and received the Silver Star, the Bronx Star for Valor, and the Purple Heart. He has written four fiction books and a memoir. 2034 is his newest book, which he co-wrote with retired Admiral James Stevridis. Elliot is with me via Skype from Palm Beach. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Rob. I'm sorry Admiral Stavridis wasn't able to join us because I'm really fascinated by partnerships. How did it come to pass that you wrote a book with a four-star general who was formerly the Supreme Allied Commander at NATO?
0: Um, well, you know, the the book originally, the concept of the book was the Admiral's idea And uh, it was, you know, if we you could certainly say right now, vis-a-vis the United States relationship with China, that if we're not in a Cold War, we are at least in sort of the foothills of a Cold War. So with that understanding, I think, you know, he kind of you know, he's always been a great reader. He looked out at our last Cold War and it was filled with uh, a literature books like the Third World War by Sir General Sir uh, John Hackett on the beach or films like Red Dawn or Dr. Strangelove. Like there was just this rich body of literature, film and stories all imagining what that cold war would look like against the Soviets. But you looked at, you know, this contemporary cold war, there's really, there's nothing. And so he sort of the idea of, you know, wouldn't it be fun to try to tell a story, uh, and imagine what that war could look like. So he approached his editor at Penguin press, a guy named Scott Moyers kind of outlined the idea And Scott said, well, you know, if you're going to do this, you should really work with a novelist. And hey, aren't you and Elliot friends? And so Scott's actually also my editor at Penguin Press. What Scott didn't know at the moment was that uh, Jim and I had had already been friends for the better part of a decade. We were uh, were both graduates of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, which is their school for international affairs. He, when he retired from the Navy, uh, went on to be the dean of the school. So I knew him in his capacity as dean. He had actually already asked me to come and serve as writer in residence at the school for a semester. And so when I went and did that, you know, I asked him, well, what does his job sort of entail? And um, he sent me an email uh, with a few bullets in it. And One of the bullets was talk with the dean about books whenever he feels like it. So kind of based on that job description, he, he and I actually had this really rich background of talking about books uh, he loves fiction, you know, as well as nonfiction, but, you know, reads a lot of fiction. I primarily write fiction. So when Scott kind of came to me, it was like, you know, Jim has this idea, you know, work of speculative fiction, imagining uh, what the next, you know, world war would look like if it was fought against China. You know, I, he and I already really had a kind of a shared sensibility around books. And uh, we were very much, I think, immediately aligned that we wanted the book. We didn't want it to be some huge door stopping techno thriller with, dependencies and character glossary charts and all of that. We wanted to be something that was lean, um, but that was very much character driven. Uh,
1: and so kind of with that alignment, uh, it made it easy for us to uh, start writing the book. It seems to me that every month our relationship with China seems to get worse. So I just wonder if, if you feel like things have evolved since you started writing this book and since it's come out to move in that same direction or that or you've seen something different.
0: Oh, um, you know, certainly when we first started talking about this book, I want to say it was probably November or December of 2018. So those conversations I just mentioned to you, they were happening. So what, three years ago, and then we really started writing the book in earnest in that, you know, January, February timeframe of 2019. So, you know, if we think of everything that has happened in the interim to include, you know, the, the coronavirus or, um, you know, our relationship with the Iranians or the withdrawal from Afghanistan or on the domestic front, things like January 6th. I mean, we've done a lot of living in, in these three years. And so specifically vis-a-vis our relationship with China, uh, our relationship has, uh, I was gonna say evolved, but I would say devolved. And uh, unfortunately we've seen conditions get worse and worse And um, since the book has come out, you know, we've had a lot of people, you know, give us nice reviews, nice comments. But one consistent criticism that I would say is right on the money is people have said, hey, you know, we love the book. It's great. Um, But you did get one big thing wrong. The year is not 2034. Uh, If This is going to happen. It's going to happen before 2034. And I would say, given the pace of our deteriorating relationship with China, that is uh, that's not a comment without some merit.
1: Uh, since the real world seems so depressing and, and your book will, I guess, give us a little more time Why don't we, why don't we talk a little specifics about the story It's, it's basically a war thriller I, I, I think such a genre exists And it basically starts with an incident In the South China Sea That escalates into the kind of nightmare of nuclear conflict I used to worry about as a kid growing up Could you tell our listeners about the incident that sets things off?
0: Sure. Maybe I'll just I'll just set up the book a little bit. So when it when it opens, uh, as you mentioned, Rob, the characters really the the, the book is really told around five principal characters and you meet all of them in this opening incident. So the first one is you meet Commodore Sarah Hunt, and she is leading what's called a Freedom of Navigation Patrol through the South China Sea. Those are patrols we run we run today, as well as our allies. The South China Sea are international waters, although the Chinese claim them to be territorial waters. And that's long been an issue of dispute. So we run these freedom of navigation patrols. So Commodore Sarah Hunt, she is a Navy veteran. She's leading three destroyers on one of these patrols, and she spies uh, what seems to be a fishing trawler in duress with you know, thick clouds of black smoke coming off of its bridge. And when she goes to investigate this fishing trawler, she very quickly finds out that this is anything but a run-of-the-mill fishing trawler. So we then cut to the other side of the world where you meet really the second principal character of the book. And that is a um, Marine Corps major, Chris wedge Mitchell. Uh, he's an aviator and his call sign is wedge because a wedge is the world's oldest and simplest tool. And in many respects, so is he, uh, he is a fourth generation Marine aviator. So his father flew missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. His grandfather flew, dropping napalm in Vietnam, and his great-grandfather flew in the South Pacific in the Second World War. But when we meet him, he is above the Straits of Hormuz uh, with really his wing just right on the edge of Iranian airspace. And he is lamenting the fact that unlike his forebears, he really doesn't feel much of, like much of a pilot at all because the state-of-the-art F-35 he's flying, it's so technologically advanced, it kind of flies itself, at which point... His airplane literally begins to fly itself. The controls become non-responsive and it diverts into Iranian airspace on a glide slope down to Bandar Abbas Airfield. We then cut all the way across the world. Again, we meet the third principal character of the book. And he is in the White House Situation Room. And he is Dr. Uh, Sandeep Sandy Chowdhury. Uh, He works on the National Security Council staff. He is a graduate of the esteemed Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, where both the Admiral and I went, so we had to throw that in there. And um, he's watching these kind of twin crises playing out, the one in the South China Sea and the one over Iranian airspace, and he's trying to make sense of them when his telephone rings. And on the other end of the line is the fourth principal character of the book, and that is Admiral Lin Bao. And he is, the, he is China's military attache to the United States, so he's also in Washington, D.C., he is a, he's actually Chinese. He's of dual Chinese-American parentage. So his mother uh, was American, his father was Chinese, and he was raised in China. And this sort of has always given him his edge in his career because he really understands the American mind. But it's also been a hindrance to him because the Chinese have never entirely trusted him. And so he's got a message for Sandy Chowdhury at the National Security Council staff. And that is that these two incidents, the one in the South China Sea and the one above Iranian airspace, they are actually connected and that the Chinese will no longer tolerate these freedom of navigation patrols. At which time there's a massive cyber attack on the US. So all the power goes out and then it blinks right back on. When it goes on in the White House, none of the passwords are working, computers aren't going are, aren't, aren't on again. Uh, and suddenly we realize that the world has sort of been flipped on its edge and the Chinese possess certain technological capabilities that have leveled the playing field. That kind of takes you like right up generally to sort of the first opening pages chapter of the book. I would just be remiss if I didn't say that the fifth principal character you meet right at the opening of the second chapter, and that is Brigadier General Qasim Farshad. And he is a uh, general in the Iranian paramilitary coups force. And he is a veteran of the forever wars in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, although he fought on the opposite side. And when Wedge's aircraft is taken down into Bandar Abbas, waiting on the tarmac to conduct his interrogation is Brigadier Farshad. With those five characters, we kind of enter this world of 2034, uh, where we watch these nations just descend into this global configuration. So the scenario is really kind of like a Guns of August scenario. You see uh, this ladder, we or we go up this ladder of escalation.
1: Incidents like the one in the South China Sea I imagine as we're doing these freedom of navigation exercises and China is asserting what it thinks is its right over those waters. I imagine there are similar, not perhaps specifically like this incident, but I'm wondering what the history is there and what you and the Admiral have brought here from your own knowledge or from history or things that maybe haven't actually happened, but have almost happened or you've prepared to have happened.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, listen, obviously uh, he and I bring our our respective experiences um, into this, just sort of our life experiences. So it's sort of difficult to unpack the entirety of your life experience. But there's there is a lot of that in there. I mean, you know, the admiral has commanded these destroyers on freedom of navigation patrols. I myself am a veteran of these forever wars. So, you know, all of that is layered into into the narrative with many of the details Um, He and I have both worked in the White House. So um, so all of that is in there as well. But really, you know, this isn't a work of predictive fiction, right? It's it's a work of speculative fiction and it's a cautionary tale. So it does open with this incident. And, you know, we see incidents like this occur all the time. I mean, 10 days ago, uh, a U.S. submarine collided with an unknown object in the South China Sea. You know, everyone on board was okay, But, um, you know, incidents like that occur. You know, the Chinese. You know, we just learned have hypersonic missiles that threaten us. You know, that was three days ago. That was in the, that was in the headlines. Those incidents aren't specific just to China. I mean, it's a story as old as war. These cycles of escalation and mis- and, and these cycles of miscalculation. Right. Because you think about it. Baked into every war since the dawn of mankind and into the future is miscalculation. And I say that because when both sides decide to go to war, one side, or they, both sides, when they decide to go to war, think they're gonna win. So one side, by definition, is always miscalculating.
1: I think both sides are quoting Sun Tzu, the, the great philosopher of war, and so I guess they both think they're pretty smart about what they're doing. The, the name of the episode, Fall Like a Thunderbolt, I took that from the book, because someone was quoting that. So I guess that's true, Everyone, no, no one starts a war thinking they're gonna lose. A follow up question is, given that you and the Admiral bring so much personal knowledge and experience to the story, were there any particular things where you needed to do extra research, consult with other experts to build up your knowledge to write the story?
0: you know, with a number of the platforms, we obviously wanted to make sure that we had everything right. Uh, You know, when we're describing things on an F-35, you know, I have friends who work in marine aviation. So I wanted to, you know, make sure I wasn't misremembering anything or when there are specific platforms, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, the research I was reading tracked with people's experiences. So, you know, here and there, yeah, like, you know, certainly details on the margins and some of the stuff that, you know, had to do with cyber warfare. We wanted to make sure we had everything right. But I would say sort of the The broader scenario is one that uh, is is more deeply rooted in our uh, respective experiences, and that was what we were
1: drawing from. And as you said, the book is speculative. It's set only 13 years in the future. I wonder if you thought about other changes that you included in the book, little tweaks to technology, things moving forward in anticipation of of things perhaps being more advanced. I mean, from a global structure perspective, not being an expert myself, but my sense was that the main difference between now and then is that India and China are a little more confident, and maybe justifiably so as the story unfolds, you realize that their technology has advanced. And the US seems a little over the hill, which I think is something the country has been dealing with already. So I wonder if you could talk about those changes or other changes that you and the admiral were thinking about as you were creating this slightly futuristic world.
0: Absolutely. Well, sort of interestingly enough, when we started working on the book, we didn't actually have the date completely entirely set. And we initially were like, well, maybe this is happening in the 2050s. And then the more work we did, and the more we were sort of imagining this world, it was almost like kind of like a tide coming up the beach towards us. Like, well, no, maybe this, this really feels more like it would be the 2040s. And it kept rolling back and rolling back until we were in the 2030s, because as we would game out what was going to occur, we realized, and this is coming at us much more, much more quickly um, than we initially anticipated. So I think that was one part of it. You know, we also wanted to give the book a certain feel, you know, a certain immediacy. So what does 2034, what is that year, what's it going to feel like, you know? And, um, you know, we didn't want the technology to become too much of a distraction from the narrative. So like, you know, we didn't want to have like kind of the the technological equivalent of like back to the future two, where everyone's on hoverboards and you're not paying attention to what's going on because there's all this whiz bang technology. But we certainly wanted to gesture to the fact that, you know, the world is, uh, is very different. So I think, to give you one specific thing in the co-writing process, I think there was a moment where in one draft I had a character reading a newspaper and Jim said to me, he's like, there's no one's going to be reading newspapers in 2034. I'm sorry, there's no way no one's been reading a physical newspaper. And he was right. On the other hand, there was a moment when we had a character in Washington, DC, getting out of a, a, a taxi cab driven by a taxi driver. And, um, Jim was like, well, I think they'll be all automated cars. I was like, oh, you don't know. I mean, those those driverless cars aren't working. And like, you know, I think I don't think we want to make the streets feel so unrecognizable to us that that the reader isn't going to feel the immediacy of this. So I think what we were kind of going for was just narratively speaking, a world where it's it's sort of it's uncanny to use that word, like in the Freudian sense. And What I mean is, you know, let me just wait. If you were to have a robot in your house that would, like, do chores for you and serve you coffee, which, which would you feel more comfortable with? Would you want a robot that looked like R2-D2 or would you want a robot that, like, looked 99% lifelike? Which would be more creepy to you?
1: Oh, yeah. The, I would want R2-D2. I, I would not want the.
0: Right. But the thing that's, like, 99% lifelike, that's what it means. When something's uncanny, it's like the uncanniness is that 1% that's just not quite right that really creeps you out so we kind of wanted to create this uncanny world where it's like 99% of 2034 looks a lot like today. But we're hoping this like little one or 2% that we gestured towards is gonna freak you out when you read it.
1: I wanted to talk a little more about this idea of America not having a clear picture of itself. And that's something that Sandeep Chowdhury, who you mentioned, the deputy national security advisor, he thinks at one point something like, Actually, I have the quote here: "The America we believe ourselves to be is no longer that America that we are." And you also mentioned Lin Bao, the Chinese attaché or liaison, who's also half American. He he hints at something similar when he thinks about how Americans' moral certitude, single-minded determination, and blithe optimism have undermined America's ability to find a solution into this conflict. And I. I would think at one time we would have claimed moral certitude and single-minded determination as points of pride, something to distinguish us and say that we've got this can-do attitude. I just wonder if you could go a little more into that, this idea of America being blinded by its certitude and not being the country we necessarily think we are.
0: Absolutely. And, but I'll preface this by saying, um, and I hope you know this isn't a cop-out on my part, but it's really how I work, is, you know, I've always believed, as a novelist, right, my job is to create real characters, and so that they're so real that you know, like when they're on the page and the story's being told from their perspective, it's, it's, it's as though they're stepping on a stage and they're making their case to you, the reader, as though they would make, as though they were making their case before God. So those quotes you read, those aren't the world according to Eliot; they're the world according to that character. Um, and I think there's merit into what those characters are saying. Uh, I don't know that I would say I a hundred percent agree with it, but I certainly agree that someone in that position might look at us, uh, you know, someone who is the Chinese military attache might call our optimism, blithe optimism. You know, I myself don't think it's necessarily always a blithe optimism. I think actually our optimism is one of the things that makes us great, but someone from China might think that or Sandy Chowdhury, you know, who's watching American decision making go on. I mean, he, you know, he might be looking at us. And because he's a recent immigrant, you know, he still has that sort of outsider insider perspective might say, you know, oftentimes we are just not, we are not the people that we think we are to the rest of the world. And so a lot of the process of, listen, I try to write the books that I enjoy reading and the books that I enjoy reading interrogate the world from all sorts of different perspectives and lay out arguments to me that, you know, even if I don't agree with them 100%, you know, they leave me thinking. Uh, And I hope that when you meet these characters on the page, you walk away and they leave you thinking.
1: I would say that was a little bit of a cop out,
0: but I understand. (laughs) I don't I don't think I think America's I do think actually America's best days are still ahead of it. I think this is a great country. I think I've spent a lot of my life living overseas. I think sometimes we as Americans don't understand how having an ocean separate us from the rest of the world. Also means that the way, the way the rest of the world perceives us is different than how we perceive perceive ourselves. That can sometimes get us in trouble, but you know it can also sometimes be a good thing because sometimes our lack of self awareness has allowed us to be innovative and to and to behave in ways uh, that you know we reinvent ourselves. Everyone who comes here came from somewhere, not everyone, but the, you know many many people who came here came from somewhere, and so this is a country built on reinvention in so many ways. So it's also healthy. So, you know, these characters are all, you know, for me, when I write, you know, when I'm writing a character, it's like, you know, you're trying on, you're trying on different worldviews
1: and trying to, you know, write them credibly. Absolutely. I totally, I totally get that. It's just the way the story ultimately plays out that the observations they've made seem more correct than not in the way the story unfolds too. So,
0: right. But it's a cautionary tale. There's still time to take the exit ramp.
1: Well, so the novel focuses on what the public might think of as kind of supporting characters in a war story. You know, for instance, the leaders of the main countries of China and the U.S. and Russia and India are mentioned only in passing pretty much i mean there's a u.s president she's a woman she's in some meetings you hear her give a public speech once i think broadcast to the nation but the story really focuses on the people who you introduced at the beginning who are key players but they're more behind the scenes i mean there may be a you know an ad, an admiral or a, the equivalent of the secretary of defense in china it's not a book, it's not a book that focuses on principles Exactly. So I wanted to ask why, why did you decide to tell, tell the story through these characters eyes? I think two, two,
0: there's two sides to that. One is sort of the the geopolitical answer. And the other one is sort of the narrative answer. I think geopolitically, you know, if you look back at history, some of the most fascinating aspects of history are how, you know, very big doors swing on small hinges. And so understanding, you know, those people behind the scenes do play very big roles. If you, if you look back, if you look historically I think a narrative answer to that is that the the principals, like the secretary of state or, you know, the, the, the you know, the chairman of the Communist Party, you know, those are big outsized figures. And when they step into a room, they suck up all the oxygen from the room. And I think that room is more interesting when they're not in it because you're getting to hear all the sidebar conversations. And so I wanted there to always be space. You know, we wanted there to be space for that in the narrative. And I think you want to see characters who both have agency, but also at certain moments don't have agency in what's going on. Like most of us don't have agency in these huge world events. And so those characters are more accessible in many ways to a reader. So narratively, um, it also felt right that the story, you'd be seeing it kind of just one level below.
1: Right, I mean, ultimately they don't make the final decisions and yet they're so crucial to the fine tuning of some of the things that are going on, but there's so much that isn't in their control. So, cyber warfare plays a role in the story, as you suggested. When the pilot, when Wedge is playing, he can't control it anymore and it just lands of its own volition and the power goes out across the US. And that's kind of, I think, the way we've been mentally prepared in this country to think the next war is going to happen. I mean, we've done it with the Iranian centrifuges and the Russians have hacked into government computers. And so we're sort of waiting for that. And, you know, you've set it up. Beautifully, like how it could undermine things at the beginning of this conflict. But then it comes back down to nuclear weapons again, which I find fascinating because that was the threat of the 50s and 60s and 70s and has always been over our head. So why does the story go there? I mean, I know nuclear weapons are still around Um, because it would go there. I mean, if you. the thing that cyber does in the
0: book, and it's something that's always happened throughout history, is you, know, you will have, it gets back to this miscalculation where you have one side believes it has, a techn- it has technological superiority over another side and is convinced of it. And so behaves in certain ways, convinced of its own superiority, and then, uh-oh, suddenly realizes it no longer has that superiority. Like, and you know, to give you a historical example, one that I love is the Battle of Agincourt, it was found in 1415 in France. It was made famous by William Shakespeare in his play Henry V. You know, anything about that battle, basically the British had come into, or they were the English back then had come into France to claim what they believed were certain territories. Um, their army was at the end of its supply line, and it came up upon a, a massive French army that uh, at the time was equipped with the most state-of-the-art technology. These French knights were wearing thick plate armor. No one could stop heavy French knights in thick-plate armor. So they meet the English on the other side of this field. The English don't really have many knights in thick-plate armor. The French, with superior numbers and this technology, are so cocky, they just decide to get off their horses. They're going to march across this field. It rained the night before, so the field was muddy. They kind of got bogged down and slowed in the field. And the English had a much lower-cost piece of technology that was newer that the French weren't acquainted with, which was the longbow. So as the French were kind of smug, bogged down in this field, the English just rained arrows down the, on them all day and won the, an incredibly une- une- uneven battle that tipped the, uh, changed the balance of power in Europe for generations. This was at the end of the Hundred Years War. Classic example of one side convinced that it had the technological superiority when in fact they were fighting the wrong type of battle. It's the same thing with cyber. Cyber becomes this leveler. You know, we in this scenario are the French we have our aircraft carrier battle groups, we have all of our incredibly sophisticated platforms like the F-35, uh, and we are convinced of the military superiority that we've enjoyed since the end of the Second World War for generations. And what we don't realize is that our reliance on cyber has made all of that technology, uh, it's made it irrelevant. And suddenly we are up against a pier like China and we find ourselves on, the back, on our back foot after they uh, take out a significant chunk of our fleet. So this gets to kind of the second part of the question, right? So what happens? How does the U.S. behave when suddenly, out of the blue, we're on our back foot and we've just lost a major naval battle and we feel existentially threatened? Well, you go back to the old technology, which are our nuclear weapons. I mean, that's never gone. That's never gone away. We have, I mean, today we have nuclear weapons. The Chinese have nuclear weapons. So, you know, if you back if you back a nation into the corner, how does it lash out? And so, you know, as, as Admiral Stavridis and I were just sitting there and, you know, we're plotting out this story and we're really kind of into the second chapter, it becomes obvious. Okay. Well, what's going to happen now, now that there's a cyber attacks happen and, you know, we lose a battle. at sea. And I'm trying, I don't want to give away too much. Like, what do we do? How do we behave? It's like, well, we'd, there'd be a lot of pressure to pull out a tactical nuclear weapon, a small scale limited nuclear strike at sea. Okay. But then once you start using nuclear weapons, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're going down a whole new path.
1: Let's spend a little time talking about the writing process. What was it like working with the Admiral? How did it work? Did you write sections and exchange them back and forth? Did you meet regularly? You know, when we started this project, I mean, we, you know, we'd been friends for a long time, but we'd never
0: worked on anything together and neither of us had ever collaborated in in our writing and he's written many books as well. So, Oh, so we didn't know if this would work. So we basically said, "Hey, listen, like this could be fun, but let's see if we can write the first chapter." And so we sat down and kind of, with a great deal of detail, plotted out this initial incident. We call the Winry incident because that's the name of this fishing trawler, and we laid it all out. This is what's going to happen. This is going to happen. And then once kind of all that detailing was done, we wrote up the chapter. Uh, I would kind of take, you know, as the novelist, I would take first stab at, you know, just writing, writing the scenes out, and then I would hand it to him and. You know, he would edit it up and add bits in and, you know, then he'd give it back to me and we kind of batted back and forth between the two of us until we felt like we had a good chapter. So we did that for the first one and that seemed to work. And that's how we actually wound up writing the book, just chapter by chapter. Uh, and the entire book is, uh, you know, six chapters long with a with a coda, sort of a shorter
1: uh, seventh chapter at the end. Did you have an overarching outline you were working with or were you just kind of mapping it out chapter by chapter?
0: You had an outline that the Admiral kind of maintained. That was sort of an evolving outline. So we started with an outline that he put together, and then we would write the chapters and he would update the outline. And that kind of just kept us, you know, we had a general that was a good general roadmap of where we're going. But you know, there's a lot in the book that, and this has always been my process in writing, you know, I don't necessarily know how it's going to end. You know, the story reveals itself. So there were many parts and twists in this, in this novel that, you know, needed to reveal themselves. And the only way they would reveal themselves was through the writing process, you know, one of which um, I would mention is you know obviously the stakes of the book are set at the outset, right? It's it's a it's a war that's fought between the United States and China. So as a reader coming into the book and as someone embarking on this story, right, your 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 preconceptions that well, one of the you know, either the United States or China is going to win, and I would just say neither the United States nor China wins this war. Someone else is
1: really the one who wins the war, but I I won't say. So, listening you have to pick up the book to find out excellent what a great tease so so let's end it there i guess so people have time to run out and buy the book before they uh before they get home if they're listening in their car say so thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about 2034 and for scaring me about the future and making me wonder if it really should have been called 2026 or something
0: I would, just, I would just end by saying, too, that, you know, for a book on a
1: pretty bleak topic, uh, you know, we had a lot of fun writing it, and I think it's a pretty fun read. I agree. I agree. I've been speaking with Elliot Ackerman about 2034, a novel of the next world war, which uh, came out in the spring from Penguin Press, and it is uh, he co-authored it with Admiral James Stavridis. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please subscribe. Feel free to support the show with... Uh, five-star review that would be lovely michael aaron of quivernyc.com composed our theme music i'm rob wolf and i edit the show marshall poe is editor and founder of the new books network and leanne wilson is the co-editor take care of yourselves buy lots of books and please come back again